Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSite News. Well, today we're going to be addressing a topic that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about, but is an essential topic to address in today's culture because the topic actually impacts every single one of you, whether you realize it or not. That topic is internet pornography. Now, the reason I specify internet pornography is because I give presentations on pornography in churches, in high schools, and even occasionally on university campuses. And I find that among older people, there's this misconception that when we're talking about pornography, we're talking about the pornography of a previous generation. That we're talking about Playboy magazine or Hustler magazine or Penthouse magazine. And in fact, when I when I turned 13 and my dad sat me down to warn me against pornography, and I think I was one of the only guys in my high school who got that talk from his dad to begin with, he was warning me about magazines. Because that generation grew up with porn magazines being the greatest threat. But with the advent of the internet, with the digital revolution, we have seen pornography take and nearly conquer our culture. And when I say that, I am not exaggerating. Let me give you a couple of numbers just to help you get an idea of how thoroughly pornography has infiltrated every aspect of our culture. And I'm not even talking about the fact that, you know, a torture porn novel like Fifty Shades of Grey sold over 100 million copies, spawned a ton of imitations, and launched a blockbuster Hollywood trilogy. I'm talking about the fact that so many people are looking at porn that the numbers are absolutely actually staggering to consider. I'll give you one example. In 2016, a single porn company, and I won't name the company for obvious reasons, decided to release their statistics on how many people had viewed porn on their sites in a single year. And what they did was they added the hours of porn watched into days, the days into months, the months into years, and then the years, yes, into centuries. And I often start my presentations on pornography at high schools or at churches by asking, how many years of pornography do you think were consumed, for example, in the year 2016? Most people guess, you know, maybe a hundred years, a whole century, or even a bit more than that. And so the answer often blows them away because the accurate answer is over 500,000 years of pornography were consumed, which, according to the porn company, uh, means about roughly 12 porn videos for every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. The average age of first exposure to pornography is now age nine. The youngest porn addict I've ever met was nine years old. And when I speak in high schools, the average age of a porn addict that I'm talking to started looking at porn in grade six. And I'm speaking, by and large, in Christian schools. Pornography is percolating into our communities, into our churches, into our families, and into our marriages. And if we don't manage to address this threat, nothing else is going to matter. We can be a fantastic pro-life activists. We can be effective advocates against euthanasia. But pornography is tearing at the very communities that we depend on for the survival of our families. And that's why it's so important to take a look at these issues closely and to take them seriously. I'll give you a few other numbers. Over 80% of men are looking at porn frequently. Over 50% of women are now looking at porn frequently. And some experts, some female experts on this issue, think that number is actually much higher because pornography is becoming ubiquitous. 
Pornography is becoming something that is simply common to growing up in the 2000s. Pornography is just awash in our culture. And there are a lot of evangelical experts, for example, who are warning that pornography has so thoroughly affected the church that according to one poll, just over 50% of pastors admitted they'd looked at porn in the last month. Josh McDowell did an enormous study on this, and the data he found is truly disturbing, although unfortunately, uh, for myself at least, not surprising. Matt Frad has also dealt with this uh, in his line of work. He, he wrote a book called The Porn Myth, and he works with priests to help them ensure that pornography is not an addiction that they are chained to. So pornography is affecting everything at every level. Pornography is a question that we need to get right. And I'm going to be doing a, quite a number of shows about pornography on this podcast. But to start off this discussion, I first wanted uh, to give you a tour of the porn industry. And that might sound like a weird thing to say, but bear with me for a minute. A lot of people think the porn that they're watching is real life. They think that the porn that they're watching is an accurate representation of sexuality. They think that the people in the porn industry are there because they want to be there and because they're making good money, but that could not be further from the truth. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference in Houston, Texas, uh, put on by the National Center to Combat Sexual Exploitation, which is a fantastic group that fights all forms of sexual exploitation operating out of Washington, D.C., and I actually ended up meeting a young woman named Jessica Neely. She's now 38 years old. But Jessica Neely was unique among most of the people at that conference because she used to be a former porn actress. Well, before she was a porn actress, she was a youth pastor. And she was raped at the age of 23. And that triggered a downward spiral that resulted in her joining the porn industry. She began escorting at a brothel, and eventually she was even involved in human trafficking and at one point faced 30 years in federal prison for trafficking. She spent a decade in the porn industry, and she was one of the most Googled porn stars of the mid-2000s. So almost nobody knows as much about what is going on inside the porn industry as Jessica Neely. And she is now turned into one of the most eloquent anti-porn activists because she can speak from brutal experience. She's gone through several years of recovery, and I, I talk with her fairly frequently, and she agreed to come onto this podcast and to share her story so that each and every one of you can hear what the porn industry is really all about. So listen to her story. I warn you, some of these some of these stories are going to be very difficult to listen to. But again, I think that for our culture to understand how toxic and how poisonous our collective addiction to pornography is, we need to understand the product we're consuming. And the product we're consuming is girls just like Jessica Neely. Without further comment, I'd like to present my conversation with former porn performer Jessica Neely. So the first question is, you grew up in a, in a Christian family, and then you ended up in, in the porn industry. Can you ex just explain to our listeners a bit of that journey and, and how that happened and how that took place? Absolutely. Um, I, the way that I was raised, I was raised in a very um, conservative, uh, traditional um, background where I was a preacher's daughter. My I was raised in a small town of about 1,200 kids. I was five foot eight by third grade, so my parents put me in every single sport imaginable. So I had many opportunities to get involved in sports. I had the opportunity 
to take 12 years of classical piano. So I had a very well-rounded childhood, you know, piano lessons and swimming lessons, so many different opportunities as a child. My uh, my mother worked full-time as a post office worker. My father was a full-time pastor. Um, But yet, even as a child, I was super involved in being kind of an activist. I started um, on-campus Bible studies, and I was very productive as far as, like, people liked me or they didn't like me, like me, but I was always starting something and doing something, no matter what the opinion of people was, I was going to do it. Um, so in um, in high school, I started a spinoff of the American Cancer Society, where high school students would talk to elementary school students about the cause and um, or the impact of of cigarette smoking, and I would educate children on the impacts of cigarette smoking, what what happens with the addiction of cigarette smoking, and that was very successful. Then uh, on the day that I graduated, they would read off what you are going to be when you grow up, and when I walked down that long aisle to the stage, they gave a history of, here's Jessica, here are her hobbies, here's her aspirations, and most of all, she sees herself taking over focus on the family when Dr. James Dobson dies. Like, I was... I think I was the only one that found that funny, but I was determined to take over focus on the family. Um, I loved, I loved God. I had a, a strong relationship with God. Um, I would journal about my relationship with God and what I was learning. Um, loved to memorize scripture verses uh, and memorize Corinthians 13 or just another verse every single week. Like God was a huge part of my life. Um, also in the nineties, there was, something way back in the day called abstinence. Not many people have heard of the term abstinence, but it was like the concept of saving yourself for marriage, that maybe this person is worth, uh, that you are worth saving yourself for marriage, that you don't have to give yourself away. And so I was huge into the the true love weights movement of save yourself for marriage. But then again, I was also a dork. So I thought this movement moves with me because by default, I'm abstinent. And um, in at the age of nine, uh, 18, right out of high school, I went into full-time ministry. I was on the road uh, traveling with a program called Master's Commission, where we would take um, Bible classes uh, during the day, and we would do ministry at night. And uh, once again, I loved talking about purity and saving myself for marriage. At the age of 23, when I was at a church plant, um, I was it was Easter Sunday, and I was walking out to my car. And um, my head, I don't even remember any crunch of snow. I don't remember anybody coming up behind me. This is Estes Park, Colorado, where there's absolutely no crime. You're never suspicious of anybody. And I just remember my head hitting the car and falling on the ground. And I saw my blood just splatter in the snow. Um, And this was Easter Sunday. And I'm like, okay, this is Easter Sunday. And and I heard the sound of this guy's zipper, and I heard his cricket phone go off. Da 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 da. And I was like, I think, I think I'm going. I think this is rape. I think this is. I is this what I saved myself for? I had these 
this mindset of like going down the checklist that the girls went through. Um, I didn't drink. I didn't flirt with anybody. I haven't talked to any guys. I wasn't dressed provocatively. I wasn't wearing a short skirt or high heels. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm yelling, like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Back up, back up. I don't, I don't deserve rape. And I did not save myself for this. And good girls and good Christians, Christians don't get raped. If you obey God, this should not happen. And this this horrible word that we have in the American um, theology of like, I don't deserve, I don't deserve. And in my mind, I was yelling, I don't deserve this. And I, um, um, after that rape, I had spun out that I didn't understand sexually based trauma. I didn't understand PTSD, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. I didn't understand the the trauma that goes with sexually based um i didn't understand trauma at all um how i was raised is that if you go to an altar and you get prayed for everything will be okay right or if you quote these five scriptures say it five times uh how's your quiet time with the lord in the morning if you have quiet time five days a week um, and do jumping jacks and hold an apple over your head or whatever. It's that I believed in like shake this glass ball, do this, whatever. I believed in like this conjuring up of acts and services that would do away with trauma and I'm going to be okay. Um, I was supposed to speak at the YMC of the Rockies that Wednesday. It was, it was spring break week and I was to talk to young girls about saving themselves for marriage and why save themselves for marriage, and the gift of singleness, and what they should be doing while they are single is investing in themselves. And all I could do while I was on stage was I looked out at the audience, and I felt I just urinated all over myself on the stage. And people are like, is this part of your act? Is she okay? I was stuttering. My hair started falling out in huge clumps. Um, I didn't... I didn't know how to handle myself. And I called my father and I told him what happened. And he's like, we're going, I'm going to come for you. And we're going to help you uh, get into some therapy in Colorado Springs. We're going to take you away from this and just take you out of the ministry. And I didn't know that raped girls could be in ministry. I didn't know like, oh yes, I, I didn't know of any, I did not have any role models. I didn't have accountability. I didn't, pastors never had trauma. Pastors never had anything bad happen in their life. Pastors were not accountable to anybody. My father, as superintendent of my denomination, had dismissed 17 pastors, mostly for uh, immorality, pornography, embezzlement. But once that pastor was dismissed, there was no second chances. There, I would sit on the front row with the preacher's wife and the kids, and I was there for the Sundays that the church would explode. And what is she supposed to do now? And I was now that person that, um, living in a fallen world, uh, someone's choice has impacted my life, and I did not know how to handle this. So I went into hiding. Um, I knew that my entire life calling of being in the ministry, uh, called to the ministry since the third grade, that I assumed that everything from that moment was over and destroyed. And so therefore, I lived like it. I went to um, nightclubs. I started, I was going to rape men back. I was going to call the shots. I was going to I was going to set the standards of like, look what you took from me, I'm going to take from you. And I was going to do what 
the lie of female empowerment discusses. The lie of female empowerment is that you make men pay. Legalizing prostitution is saying that when I turn 18, I'm going to make men pay. That I'm just literally waiting for that second of 18 to make men pay. And when right. you go back to your trauma to find healing, that is the grave. That is the grave of your soul, your mind, your body, your spirit. Everything is diminished when your heart is yelling out for revenge. There is there was a trauma taken care of over 2,000 years ago, and there's no need for women or those who have been sexually molested. There's no need for us to replay it. There's no need for us to make someone pay because the trauma has been paid for 2,000 years ago. And so with that, um, with that trauma and reliving that trauma night after night, um, I had went to a restaurant and there were magazines in the back uh, as you exit the restaurant. And I picked up a magazine and there were prostitution ads in the back. And I was, I called up the prostitution ads and I, I was like, I'm all in. I joined two or three different escort agencies in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, military, um, our our sex buyers, we had five military bases there, and the military they were sex buyers. Pastors were sex buyers. Um, um, it was everybody from 18 to 60 were sex buyers. People that you could not imagine know how to work a phone or how to get on the internet. Those were the buyers, and it was as easy as ordering pizza. And I remember my first journal entry when I went into the life of prostitution was what does a profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his very soul? Because I I had lost everything. I had paid off my debt and I had plastic surgery and I had everything that a woman would think like, this is empowerment. You you make more than most lawyers in Colorado Springs. This is the ultimate and I remember throwing money into the freezer and I'm yelling, when have they paid? When have they paid enough? When have they taken enough? And I got up on the counter and I laid there and I was crying on the counter and my phone is vibrating across the counter. And I'm like, when, when's it going to be done? When is it finished? And I lived and relived and relived the trauma every single day that the only difference between rape and that moment was was the money on the counter. And I had to stare at the money. I had to stare at the money to get me through of me making men pay. When there is one judgment and there is only one who judges, and it's it's no longer up to me. It's a burden I don't have to carry. Um, from that prostitution, I went, um, uh, just like with any form of exploitation, it's whatever is done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And it is who does the shouting. And um, I was trying to have my cake and eat it too, living a double life, sending my parents this guilt money to keep them sustained on the mission field, as if I was the ultimate say on whether or not God sustains them on the mission field or my brother in ministry. And my parents found out about my double life, and my dad was like, I'm coming to get you. I'd much rather you be homeless under a bridge than a prostitute. And um, I was like, nope, I can't leave this. I, It was my precious. I was addicted to the money. I wasn't um, into 
drugs as much, but I was just so consumed by making men pay. And that going to Starbucks, working at Starbucks, flipping a burger, that there was, I mean, like, there was now my greatest calling became revenge. And, um, and when, when my parents said that they knew about my double life, um, at that time, I was running, well, I didn't know to be a brothel in Denver. I didn't know, like, I knew from ministry that teamwork made the dream work, and I had called up all the high-end girls, and I was like, hi, why don't we just all work together from, like, 8 a.m. until 5 or 6, and a lot of these were single moms. Um, how did your parents I, How did your parents find out? Oh, my parents found out because um, I did have a boyfriend who was a sex buyer, and... Um, that my dad had this, like, uh, Pierre, get off the pot, talk with him, like, uh, you need to either marry my daughter, but don't shack up with her. And um, that I had found out that when he was on a business trip that he was on prostitution sites. And so I only told my parents, like, hey, this, um, you know, Eric's on all these sex buyer sites, and I'm going to leave him. And so they had only heard that part of the story. And, um, then whenever I broke up and I moved into this nice gated community, my parents were like, wait a minute, how does she afford this gated community? And, um, that is when my ex-boyfriend told them, your daughter is in prostitution. And at that time I was filming pornography in Denver. I didn't know about Los Angeles. I didn't have any aspirations of Los Angeles. I was shooting amateur pornography and I was okay with that audience, my private little part of the world. Um, I was okay with, I could see that all the activity mainly happened on Sunday. I could see that the Bible Belt was, they were my biggest purchasers. Um, I saw there was the broken church on whenever I produced pornography. I knew all the demographics of who was buying my pornography, and I knew the sex buyers, the demographics. I was like, here's here's the real church. The real church. How did uh, you go from? How did you go from um, working in prostitution to getting in the porn industry? One of the things that you and I have talked about before that a lot of people don't know is is there so many people who don't realize how easy it is now for young girls? Oh, absolutely. To, to get into um, pornography. So how did you how did you end up making that transfer and ending up in the porn industry? Good question. Okay, so how did I get into pornography? Um, I had, and It started amateur and in Colorado Springs. This is long ago. Uh, my goodness, I want to say 2005, 6, 7, 8, when um, back in the day, people used to pay for, for pornography and have membership sites. And I had went to a swingers party, and there was a couple there that said, we own this website, and... Um, it's off this female action hero. You kind of fit her mold. And we're going to film pornography that is in this action hero niche. And they sat down with me and showed me all the different niches in the back room of pornography production and um, crazy fetishes that people paid a lot of money for. And I was like, wow, this is really going to drive up my rates, uh, my prostitution rate. And so I was, I, I sat with them and just, uh, dove into the back rooms of tons of amateur background sites and just learned uh, who was on the top search of this amateur and this amateur and why they were the top search and like how to take your videos off and reload them and do this and all the different tricks on like how to how to make the most of your money um, how when and when to release the different 
uh, clips, how long should the clips be, how to edit a movie into this portion, this portion, this portion. And so I learned from this couple that they were a swingers couple that uh, ran a lot of amateur sites in Colorado. And so I was, uh, then I was like, oh, look what they're doing in uh, Las Vegas. Let's film in front of a live audience. So to me, this was my own little empire in Colorado, and I had no idea and no asset. Like, I wasn't watching professional pornography. I never watched all the big feature pornography films. I never aspired to Los Angeles, but that is where I ended up. When my parents found out about my double life, um, I one of the girls at my brothel had, had moved to Colorado to be normal, <laughs> which I would do in 2011. But she came from Los Angeles. She was a high-end... Uh, escort prostitute in Los Angeles and tons of movie producers. That was her client list. And she was like, I will get you signed on your first day there. And so we went out to Los Angeles. This was um, December or January of 2009-10. We went out to Los Angeles. There are things called ghosties. I mean, they make it sound very professional. And um, you go in on your go see to these um, porn agents, which um, they say this is all legal, this is completely legal, prostitution is legal, like there's so many different ways that they finagle around the law to say this is absolutely legal, this is not prostitution on camera, and um, so you go into go sees, they take your measurements, they weigh you, they take pictures of you with a Polaroid camera, no fancy backgrounds, no makeup, no hair. Um, they want you plain as can be, and I just remember walls of Polaroid cameras of the American daughters. The American, like, the daughters sold into prostitution on American soil. I've seen documentaries where in third world countries, parents were proud to sell their daughters, proud to have a daughter that could save the family. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I found that we are no different than third world countries. The, the parking lot was full of moms taking their daughters to porn sites to save their family during the recession of 2008 and 2009. It was a time where, um, where, where it was glamorized. Like, my daughter works at Hooters. My daughter works as a stripper. My daughter is in the sex industry because my daughter is going to save our family. And so I live in a society where... Sexual exploitation is perfectly legal in the minds of this corrupt land. Um, so that is how I got in. I signed a contract on my first day. I went into they, they have model houses where girls um, girls stay in these really grungy apartments that might sleep eight in one room. Um, and they go on ghosties. I remember throwing up on my ghosties. I was so nervous. And they just, they herd you through like cattle. You, you take a picture of forwards, sideways, back, and they just compare you. And they find the imperfections before the buyer finds the imperfections. Like the entire setup is to find imperfections. So whenever we think of pornography and we're like, oh, she's not perfect, she's not perfect, or my wife will never measure up, my wife will never measure up, is that the wife will never measure up because there's a new girl that turns 18 every single day. And this machine is, you can't keep up with this machine. There's so much money into the plastic surgery and the drugs and the substance abuse. And, um, and, and they just leave the girls by the dumpster. They don't, nobody cares if you make it to the airport. Nobody cares what, I mean, I remember being a driver for 
um, the girls with an agency, and they're like, oh, so excited, I'll come back next month. And, I mean, I remember a tear going down my cheek, like, this girl thinks that she's going to be famous. We've just used her up, destroyed her life. She'll never get a job. She's going to go back to Topeka, and Topeka, and she's going to start, like, shoving needles in her arms because she's she has this value in her mind that she's 1600 and she'll never slip away i was once 1600 i was once 1600 and in topeka kansas no man will ever they're like are you kidding me and so for then on out her spirit is broken of what her true value and her worth is and and it's a value that that nobody can compete with a paycheck doesn't state what your true value on this earth is. Um, uh, shoes, purses, none of this rubbish really covers what your value is. It's a mirage. So when you arrived in Los Angeles, it's 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 hard to, it's hard to process some of the you you tell so many stories in a row. It it gets hard to kind of process all the things that you're saying because it's. I know a lot about the porn industry. Uh, as you know, I've two chapters of my book, uh, The Culture War, which uh, which got published in, in 2016, is about what's going on in the porn industry. But just because of, of your experience inside the porn industry, when you go off on a, on a even a five-minute tangent, I'll learn more in five minutes than I did reading pages of research. Like, what is, you, you've told a few stories, but what what is the L.A. porn industry like? You said it has this... Um, the sort of public image of being very glamorous and this public image of, uh, of, you know, um, of women in porn want to be in porn. Uh, and, 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 you know, as long as there's, there's, uh, there's buyers, there's, there's going to be people who are doing it. What did you find the LA, LA is, is one of the places that produces most of the porn, uh, you know, that North Americans are, are watching. So what, what, what is the industry that produces one of the top consumed products in the Western world like? Um, first of all, they use social media, and they use social media way back before it was cool to use social media. They use social media. They use modeling um, ads like be you know make thirty thousand your first month. They use so much um, fraudulent like be famous now, be Jenna now. We've made everybody um, somebody big now. Look at our roster of all these big people, and we are going to make you famous and. Um, so there's this there's this perception that I'm going to go out to Los Angeles and I'm going to be famous. And this goes with the guys. I've had so many guys that would ask me, how do I get in the porn industry? How do I get in the porn industry? And I remember being on a red carpet for an avian and I threw my drink at this guy and I was like, how do I get out of the porn industry? And um, I was, and I remember I'd be drunk on rants and I'm like, do, do men realize that we're on suicide watch every single night of, uh, like, who's looking after Tommy Gunn? Who's looking after Sean? Who's looking after, who's looking after all these, we had so many guys in the pornography industry that were trying to kill themselves on a weekly basis. And it was us as the girls were playing suicide watch, they would be like, Jessica, I moved here to be famous and I have to escort to pay for my, my bills. Like these the guys there were prostitutes. I slept with my driver one night and he's like, Jessica, you know, can you throw me some money? I have to go prostitute tonight. And these guys would strike you as straight as strings. And they would say, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight. And I, I 
see these guys show up on different bisexual sets, and they're like, Jessica, don't tell anybody. I'm straight. I just have to pay the bills. And they would be on um, Viagra. Every single guy had Viagra, and they were shooting up. Um, no guy could – like, all of this is fake. Uh, we know that the orgasm scenes are fake. We know that those guys' the erections are fake, that they would break their um, – their manhood and end up in the hospital. And I'd give guys rides to the hospital because they broke their anatomy and they were suicidal because they were every man's dream. They were at the top and the pinnacle of being every man's dream. And um, then they realized the girls didn't want to have anything to do with them after the set. I mean, like talk about cuddle after the act. The girls aren't cuddling with you. The girls don't want to have anything to do with you. They're going out with a major sugar daddy after the scene. And so the guys would be broken that, like, I am every man's dream, and I have nothing, and I have to prostitute to pay my bills. Um, you, you never see porn stars on an episode of Crib. Like, okay, there's Jenna. But besides that, everyone is prostituting to stay there and to keep there. And even the PA and the guys who hold the boom mics, everybody's sleeping on couches or prostituting. And this goes men and women. Everybody is prostituting themselves to be there. People who have came out there to be famous um, are in prostitution. My best, one of my best friends in pornography, um, who I had to file a missing people's report on, and I didn't even know her legal name. Um, she had been out there to be a Roxy model for uh, the surf company, and 24 was too old. And so um, this is, it was the true boulevard of broken dreams that um, we'd be like, well, I'm dating this actor, this actor, but they never want to be seen on the red carpet with you, that you're realizing, like, you're trying to, like, marry the doctor, marry the lawyer, get out, get out. What other industry do girls go into that are trying so desperately to get out? What other industry do women and men go into that 1% make it out alive? Where in the world is this legal in a first world country? And it's time to question why this is legal. The more I uh, read into laws of crime, crimes against humanity, the more I was like, why is this legal on American soil? I could not believe that how people joke about pornography and that's a water cooler talk. I'm like, do you realize that I was filing missing people's reports that people were murdered in pornography, people were committing suicide, people were overdosing, and it's like a big laugh. I remember my friends um, who... Uh, who's still in the industry, she would go, Jessica, you realize when we die, we never get to go to the grave with our real name. And nobody will know who we are. And it's true. Like, um, guys who would date and they would be like, well, you can be Jessica now. And I'm, I remember yelling at this guy, who was Jessica? I didn't know who Jessica was. When I, when I went into sex, um, a sex trafficking recovery, I had five voices in my head. Like, everybody was talking to the wall and their fingers and thumbs. Like, there was so much disassociation in what there'd clinically be called multiple personality disorders. It was absolutely, positively demonic, the disassociation that a girl would have to go through to take on 10 guys a day. This is not an aspiration that we want to legalize in the United States. When you legalize prostitution, you stop looking for the victims. If somebody legalized this crap when I was in it, I would be so angry of like, this is the best you think I can do? So legalizing sin and corruption doesn't make that person who's stuck in that feel validated. We want out. One of the, it's, it's interesting uh, that you, that you put it that way. Um, 
and I've I've obviously I'm I'm quite familiar with with your story because we've had some from some long conversations in the past. But I, I know that because you've gone now to these these big anti-porn conferences that you know what the most common uh, argument is by guys who look at porn. Um, they'll listen to what you said and say, why didn't you leave then? Uh, they'll say all the girls who are in porn um, just basically, you know, went into porn because that's what they like. And as long as they get paid, why should I feel guilty? But the story that you've told me over the years, and I know that you've told audiences over the years, is much different. So what would you say to those guys who say, well, the girls who are in porn are there because because they want to be there, they're getting paid for it, and so I shouldn't feel guilty. What is your response to them as somebody who has been one of those girls? Um, my response to them would be um, a vision that flashed in my mind whenever I was at a pornography hearing for legislation was this is like going into a psych ward with a video camera and passing out $100 bills to film people in a psychotic rage. When when exploitation is the best decision that that girl has, that's not a choice. Why is it that this is the best choice for the bottom shelf of the class system in the United States? That whenever I studied slavery in my last six months of... Um, my last six months of my uh, sex trafficking recovery, I, we, I, I didn't have any connection to media but to hang out at the library, and I started studying um, slavery and the, the house slave and the field slave. And everyone wanted to aspire to be the house slave. And why would they want to leave being, why would they want to leave being the house slave and an abolition of exploitation? Why would they want to leave when they have their food, their clothing, their shelter? And they said, this is the best opportunity that these slaves will ever have. The slaves, and they called them the sledge. This is the best that the sledge will ever have. And for us to look at modern day slavery and look at young women who are at Hooters or are on the, on the strip pole and say, we will always have these among us. This is the best that they will ever do, and that we that we profit off of exploitation or we profit off abortion. There is what when, when we profit off of exploiting a human, there's a judgment, just like there's laws of gravity and laws of silence, uh, laws of gravity and science. I believe that we are about that we are facing the judgment of a culture that has re-exploited and cannibalized their own, and we're going to pay the consequences of it. But but first we must awake. We must awake just like they did with the Emancipation Proclamation and say we are free. This is what freedom is, and freedom is available. And I know for the girls who are exiting the pornography industry, um, I didn't know, do do I go work at Starbucks? Do I go work at uh, um, Home Depot or Lowe's? Like, what am I supposed to do? We don't know what freedom looks like. We must have a community that walks out freedom with us. Um, I remember crying because I couldn't, it took me four times to mop the floor. And I remember when I made coffee and I over flooded the kitchen with coffee because I was used to a church. And I mean, I remember crying because I didn't know how to function as an adult. That those who are leaving the sex industry, we need those who are in the community to come alongside of us to help us move into 
a normalcy that we've never seen before. And to me, this is, I, I love my new normal, but it took a village to raise me back to life with love so that I could exit that industry. You, so, um, you've used the phrase uh, sexual exploitation a lot, and I know you've met her as well, but one of, one of I, I think, North America's uh, most premium researchers on pornography, Dr. Mary Ann Layden, who runs the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's written um, like a lot of groundbreaking papers like uh, Porn and Sexual Violence, A New Look at Evidence, and a lot of her work is confirmed, of course, also by the work of, of Dr. Gail Dines, who wrote Pornland, uh, How Pornography is Hijacking Our Sexuality. And they've kind of dubbed all of these industries, uh, prostitution, um, stripping, uh, pornography, as the sexual exploitation industries. But one of the things that they all point to is that, well, well a lot of parents now who grew up or, you know, around Playboy or Hustler or Penthouse when they think of pornography, that's what they're thinking of, but they don't realize that that the mainstream porn now is inherently violent towards women, and not just violent because porn is inherently degrading, but actually overtly and explicitly violent. That the kinds of things that are being consumed are actually uh, essentially teaching an entire generation a new ideology about sexuality, and that ideology is deeply rooted against violence in. Uh, in violence against women. What did you see of that uh, during your time in, in, in L.A. and in the porn industry? Wow, monkey see, monkey see. This is definitely a culture that you have probably seen the same reports that I have, that at no time in history has it been recorded that it's been being reported that child-on-child sexual assault is out of control. Yes, Because yes. what monkey see, monkey do. But in, the, in Los Angeles, on... That end, you know, like the scenario is, oh, he's just delivering pizza and um, then she's, you know, uh, she's suddenly with five guys. Like uh, for us to do many of the scenes, the girls would um, have to go at least a week without eating and tons of cleaning out their system to go through certain scenes. Um, I know for the BDSM site that many are familiar with because there's only a few like major notorious ones that um, that they would tell you and they would tell your agents, she's not going to work for two weeks afterwards. They, you knew going in that you were going to leave and most likely end up in the hospital. Uh, we would do scenes, you know, leave it to the professionals. I, I had my friends who were very, um, they had already done the BDSM scenes, and they would coach me, getting me ready for BDSM scenes of like, okay, this is how you fake this. This is how you move here. This is how this uh, appears like this. And this is going, like, watch out for this part because this could put you in the hospital. Like, you want to talk about stunt devils? And that's how we would present ourselves when we were at OSHA hearings is that, like, we're stunt devils. We assume this. We assume uh, whatever happened. What We assume the bodily harm that's about to happen to us. We are... We are the porn industry stunt doubles. Well, um, kids are acting these out on each other. And I, for myself personally, um, I had a pornography agent, and then I also had a publicist. And they both told me, don't do this scenes, don't do these scenes, don't do these scenes. And, like, you don't need to do these scenes. And when a girl was about to be shot out, 
that is when she would do the BDSM scenes is because she's already done everything else. And so it was, um, Jonathan, as you have brought up, there would be more and more violence against you. And the older you were, like there's the 18 to 23 co-ed category, but once you were over the age of 23 or you had um, plastic surgery implants, as that you were in a totally different category that you should allow more harm to your body. You should allow more abusive behavior because you are too old. Who wants to raise their daughters in a culture where their expiration date is 23? If I see another beauty pageant, I'm going to go up there and like yank girls off stage. Why in the world would you tell a generation of girls the most valuable she will ever be is the second she turns 18 and then the seconds count and she's done? Why would we want to raise our young ladies like this? But going back to the violence is that it was just expected since you no longer have premium value as a woman after the age of 23, you should allow this much damage to your body. So what have we taught in that the next generation is that where oral sex is expected when you are 9, 10, and 11 years old, that instead of just passing notes, do you like me, yes or no, circle yes or no, is that oral sex is expected, and it's like send nudes is expected, that if you do not play by the rules of a pornified culture, you lose, and as Dr. Gail Dines would say, are you invisible, or are you sexable, that you do not have a choice, and I want to raise up a generation of young ladies who are the Spartas of our country that rise up and say, save the country. And this is a this is a world where women should be in debate classes and studying law and that we can overthrow this system by the knowledge of what is is and is not illegal by the by just knowing the law. I feel like I'm more empowered than I have been in my entire life. And it's because of knowledge. It's a lack of knowledge that people perish. I feel the most free that I have felt because now I know that every single day that I am fighting to establish the laws that have already set my land up for success, that I am bringing us back to the plumb line that our country was founded on. So I find my <laughs> female empowerment is by bringing us back to the plumb line of which we were established upon. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you've already said quite a bit about what sort of impact uh, the porn industry has on girls. But I, I really want to I do want to emphasize that point just because so many people who use pornography convince themselves that it's it's a perfectly acceptable thing to do, or even if they know that their porn consumption is wrong, uh, they're convinced that the people who are on the screen are not actually hurt. So can you just tell our listeners, especially all those uh, who are listening who either have struggled with porn, do struggle with porn, or know somebody who struggles with porn, and so with those three categories, that would be everybody, um, if you could just tell them what what kind of impact does the production of porn have on those who are inside the porn industry? You've said a few things already, but this is this is a point I really want to emphasize because the the purpose of this interview and this podcast is to to is to jar people awake. I know a lot of people say, "Look, porn is bad," but porn is more than bad. It's 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 evil. It's wicked, and I want I want this interview to sort of smash their knuckles so they finally let go of it. Um, no, those are great questions. What impact has this? Um, what impact has exploitation had 
on those who are in front of and behind the cameras. Um, we know for those across the nation that porn-induced erectile dysfunction is very alive and well. We know that those across the nation are accessing um, uh, Viagra at an unset rate because they can no longer be stimulated. The laws of science have showed us that they're being that they can only be stimulated by pixels on screens and no longer stimulated by those people who are in reality. So we've already seen that um, we've already seen that law of science being proven um, with those who are in front of the camera most. Uh, only 1% of girls make it out of the sex industry. Most just wash away in the opiate crisis. They wash away in overdoses. Was that intentional? Was it not intentional? And that's the debate of their life of did they intentionally or not intentionally kill themselves? Is that, that this is an industry that why is it legal in the United States that most girls are dead by 30? And I'm not just let, let's just be real. Let's not just talk about the girls. Let's talk about the guys. The guys who I went, uh, uh, through the pornography industry in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, those guys, um, if you follow them and you find out their real names, if they haven't changed them, they are they are very suicidal. I follow a few on Facebook, and it's just it's so sad to see the helplessness of they can't get a job. No one will hire them. What happens when somebody finds out what they've done? As there, there is so much of a stigma of they can't get hired. They're suicidal, and no one wants to date them. That by in in, in reality, that they are just as rejected by society when they get out as the women are when they get out. And then not just that, but those who have produced pornography, um, they are trying to fit those who have produced pornography, those who are PAs, those who have held the microphones, those who have edited pornography, that they are no longer stimulated by reality. They are no longer stimulated by um, the girls that they see in real life. They are no longer captivated by by what we were originally designed to be in awe of, and that's God's creation, that they are no longer stimulated. I mean, like, they've lost all their sexual, con like, their, no, their reality of sexual desirability, it's gone, it's shot, and they're trying to fit into a culture like, what do you used to do? Well, I used to produce pornography. Like, that's a good, uh, yeah, that's a great conversational piece, but those guys, right. they don't know how to function in reality. They've created a reality that uh, for for consumption and the laws of science and the spiritual laws behind it that we are completely spiritually and and spiritually and physically bankrupt by 30 40 years old that we have lost our life to this and it's only through choosing a life of recovery intentional daily recovery that we have a fighting chance on the outside on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> so um but i um jonathan i agree it's not just those who are in los angeles but i know that it's uh, impacting my culture i know that child on child pornography or sexual assault is a huge issue i know that impotence is a huge issue so i know that there there is not one person on this ladder of exploitation that has not been impacted. And I'm so grateful for my time of when I was a public speaker to reach the audience that I didn't realize that we were doing a hacksaw job on. I didn't realize that of how many of how much this impacted my culture. We had lied to ourselves that we were saying, you know, we'd have bio taglines of saving one marriage at a time. We had no, when I, when I look at Los Angeles now or TMZ, I look at them with the same eyes. They have no idea 
what they're doing to the rest of the United States. It's a subculture that they have no idea the impact that they are having upon the world. And only through laws and legislation and science, now I can combat this. But um, for those who are still stuck in it, my heart grieves, my heart's broken, and that at the time that they went out, I am so thankful that right now there are recovery programs and there are options if and when they choose to heal. That brings me uh, to my final question, because the story that we've we've just been discussing, of course, is is the story of of how how you ended up in the porn industry, and then what what you saw and what you witnessed and what you experienced while you were there. But of course, you're talking to me today because we met at a anti porn conference in Houston, Texas, uh, and and talked about a lot of these things. So to 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 end this this part of the story how how did you how did you leave the porn industry you now you now fight pornography you've uh reestablished a, a relationship with your family and so how did you how did you leave how did you leave the porn industry because as you've mentioned so many that you know spiraled out and yet uh, here you are how did that happen um good question how did i exit the industry is and how does anyone exit an addictive lifestyle how do they um how they exit is their level of surrender. Um, when I left Los Angeles, it was um, I shipped. It was right after I realized I was a part of the HIV cover-ups. That um, my boyfriend, porn producer, was bisexual, and like, am I okay with this? And am I okay with raising kids in this pornified culture of orgies and and sex parties of Los Angeles? Um, am I okay with missing people reports? Am I okay that my friends are dying off one by one? Um, it was me shipping my car to Colorado, and I was like, I was sitting in the Burbank airport just rocking and holding my taxes like that was going to save my life. And I was like sitting there, and I didn't care what I looked like for once. I didn't care about my extensions growing out or my hair falling out or I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. And I was just rocking back and forth. And I was going, I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. And I remember the gate agent asking me, are you fit to fly? And I was just like, just get me out of here. And how many people have left that boulevard of broken dreams where they said, just get me out of here. I want to go back to reality, not live in this la la land. So I'd moved back to Colorado and once again, uh, didn't know how to exit, went to churches. So how do I get out of prostitution? Uh, help, I'm running a brothel. How do I stop running a brothel? And it was when I was looking at 30 years in prison for uh, sex trafficking that once again, I was like, how do I get out? How do I get out? How do I get out? And I went on the run, uh, went on the run to the oil fields in Texas, waiting for sex trafficking programs to open up. Um, and I surrendered. I went into a sex trafficking program after six months. I thought I was ready to save the world. They said, wait, you've only been out for six months. And I was like, man, I have to have children. I have to get married. I have to go live normal. And um, God, once again, asked for another level of surrender. The program, they were like, well, you can come back if you start over. And I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to heal. And so I went through another year of my program. So 18 months out of the lifestyle, I sat in Kansas City, um, Kansas City, Missouri. What, like I expected to, people needed to know the truth and nobody wanted to hear the truth. So then I gave up to another level of surrender, moved to um, our Indian reservation in Oklahoma and just gave up. And it was once again, when I surrendered my hopes and when I surrendered my dreams, um, 
that that is when God was like, now I can work with you. And so I would definitely say um, I've been living out of my car full time in legislation for um, since uh, October 1st, 2017. And I have no regrets, but it took a level of surrender. If if you have said, Jessica, you're going to live out of your car with absolutely nothing. I'd be like, nope, I think I'll die behind those other lines. But like the level of surrender that's leaving addiction, that leaving um uh, the leaving, uh, I want to say a sinful lifestyle, but people are turned off by the word sin. But I just want to say leaving exploitation in any form, whether that you're the consumer, the buyer, or in it, um, that leaving it takes a level of surrender that um, it's going to make death and suicide look appealing. But the life that is there for you on the other side of surrender is completely worth it. It's the life of the unknown, and I have zero regrets. I am so thankful for every closed door. I'm so thankful for rejection. I am so thankful for the healing process um, that it is a lifelong journey. There is no graduation sticker, um, but the life that I have on this side is it's completely worth it to set people free from this garbage. You could summarize everything you've learned from, from your journey and just in a couple of sentences, tell our listeners um, why they should throw porn out. Like we've been talking for just over 45 minutes. And so I desperately hope that the message has, has really gone home already. But, but what would be your closing argument, as it were? The surrendered life. <laughs> it's, it's all about the surrendered life. With, with seeing the nation's top sex buyers in Manhattan or Beverly Hills and walking through empty, huge mansions where they li- they have nothing. But I've seen the top of Hollywood. I've seen the top of Manhattan, New York. And there's nothing in life that is worth pursuing in the life of exploitation, whether it's pornography, there's one scene is one too many and a thousand is never enough. One Buying one girl is one too many and buying a thousand girls is never enough. Consuming to get one more purse or, or like to sell yourself for shoes or for, for jackets or for clothes, that, that buying one pair of shoes or another car, it's never enough. It will, it will never satisfy and quench the that the, what's beyond the porn, what's at the root of pornography addiction or sex buying or sex addiction or shopping or gambling or eating is that you'll, you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied outside of the reason that you were created and the reason that your creator created you is that there's nothing in this life that will satisfy it. I guess that's, that's my closing argument is that there's nothing in this life that's worth compromising your family. And I just, I think that's it. There's like, why compromise? Like if you, we are in such perilous times that you have to choose, you have to make the choice of what is worthy of your life and what is worthy of every moment of your breath and exploitation is not worth it. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time mm-hmm. to, to share your story. I know it's, I know it's, it's never easy for you to do, but we really appreciate you um, being so open about your journey and, and hopefully, hopefully the story of your journey will help other people to change theirs as a result. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with former porn actress Jessica Neely. I hope you'll go and check out more articles and more columns at lifesitenews.com, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another show.